Welcome to ASA Central Line, the official podcast series of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, edited by Dr. Adam Stryker. Welcome to ASA Central Line. This is Paul Pomerantz, ASA's CEO, and we're delighted that you could join us today. I'm here today to interview Dr. Mary Dale Peterson. Mary Dale is ASA's newest uh, elected president. She'll talk about her day job as well. It's my honor every year to work with a new president who brings new skills, new insights, new passions to the role of president. And we're uh, very excited about what the future will bring. So uh, welcome, Mary Dale, and uh, glad you could spend some time with us today. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit about your path to becoming ASA's newest president. Well, I kind of took the long road, Paul. I got involved, I guess, at the local and state level and got involved with the Texas Society of Anesthesiologists. I became a delegate at the state level. And then, you know, as kind of what happened along my journey, um, the director, the district director, decided to step aside and give me a chance at being the district director, which put me on the board of directors. Um, and then I eventually became the president of the Texas Society. Along the same lines, I became a delegate to the ASA, and eventually I became the alternate director, and I became the director uh, from Texas. Eventually, I decided to go for higher office and became the assistant treasurer, probably the second woman assistant treasurer, and then went up and you know to first vice president uh, that presidential track. But the last woman that became the treasurer was Virginia Apcar, and that was quite a long time ago. Your background's a little bit different in that your career moved to a full-time executive role. Uh, with Driscoll Children's Hospital. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what influence that role has on your perception of the role of president? Sure. Well, I guess I don't like to be bored and like to learn new things. So when I first came to Driscoll, I was their second full-time pediatric anesthesiologist. And back then we were really kind of in the beginning stages of understanding how to take care of children with severe congenital heart disease. And that was really my focus was building up that cardiac program with the surgeons. And so I spent a lot of time in the heart room as well as uh, dealing with sick children in the intensive care unit, which eventually led to my becoming the director of the ICU and trying to, you know, really get that program off the ground. And then eventually, I was tasked with uh, would I please help out with a fledgling new health plan on a part-time basis. I was still practicing in the operating room in ICU and really didn't have time for it, but I've, I've learned to say yes and learned a little bit about the health plan, ultimately becoming the CEO of a, of a large Medicaid children's health plan that covers all of South Texas. And then my latest job was when we had a leadership change at the system level and the new CEO said, I can't do this without you. I want you to become my chief operating officer for the system. And so it's been an interesting journey and how this really affects my tenure as ASA president. Well, I didn't really plan on becoming the CEO around the same time that I became ASA president. I I, um, 
but sometimes opportunity knocks, and I think that's a lesson for all of us. You just have to say, yes, I can. And I've been fortunate that my boss, the CEO, understood how much time the ASA presidency would take, but he was still, he still wanted me and still wanted to work with me um, and my schedule that, you know, he's been generous in, in doing that. And I think I do understand things from different perspectives, and I can bring that to my ASA presidency. I understand the administrative perspective of a hospital. I understand it from an anesthesia perspective. I understand it from a critical care perspective and a population health perspective. So I do think I, I bring some unique perspectives to my ASA presence role and really the many hats and uh, and fields of work that an anesthesiologist can be in because I've touched on many. Uh, very, very, very exciting. How important to you was the role of a mentor? Did you have mentors? How are they best able to help you in developing your career path? And do you have any tips for our listeners on finding and working with a mentor? So although I haven't really had mentors per se that I met with on a regular basis, I would say I've been fortunate to have promoters, supporters, encouragers, people like Dr. Jim Ahrens, who was the chair of the anesthesia department uh, where I was a resident and who was also a president of ASA. Another leader, Dr. Betty Stevenson, the first woman who became president of the ASA, gave me my first committee assignment on the pediatric anesthesia committee. So I would say that there were people that opened doors for me that sent me emails along the way that encouraged me. I also think, think it's important to have friends and close family uh, that can encourage you. And I was also fortunate in that regard uh, to have a family who always encouraged me to reach my highest goals and never put limits on me. So I think that's a blessing to have. Not everybody gets that. Great. So it's feedback and encouragement. Uh, that moved you along. Talk a little bit about your goals and objectives for your uh, presidency. Uh, what do you see as the highest priority issues you hope to address during your tenure as president? And what hurdles do you think you'll have to overcome to achieve uh, or to address those issues? Well, I'll start with the hardest one, and I'm not sure it's going to be solved in my tenure, but I wanted to elevate the issue of the economic underpinnings of anesthesiologists, and it goes back 20 years to the Chow study that really grossly undervalued what anesthesiologists do, um, especially um, after we have the induction phase of anesthesia prior to emergence. That phase of anesthesia, which can last a short time or a very long time, um, is where you're really acting as a critical care medicine physician at the bedside, you know, constantly monitoring patients' vital signs and really keeping them alive during some very complex types of, of surgeries that we see today. And so really it's understanding, you know, what new payment models might be out there as well as trying to figure out if there is a way that we can undo or do a do-over with the flawed Chow study. This obviously has implications in, in how we practice and some of the 
challenges that I think we're seeing, especially in the academic and research communities, but also in every safety net hospital that um, is dependent on government payments that are really undervalued. So that would be the main one, but there are several others that I would, you know, be remiss. You can't just have one one thing you work on. The ASA has always been a professional organization that's led in quality and patient safety and, and really looking to improve outcomes for patients. And I think with the current opioid epidemic, um, we are stepping up to help our colleagues understand how pain should be treated appropriately so that uh, hopefully patients don't become addicted to opiate medications and also being able to provide alternatives to opiates with, you know, new pain therapies um, or even treatments for, for addiction. I think that there are way too many people that are still losing their lives to this epidemic that we have to really work on together with compassion and really educate the lay public on what it means to have an overdose, what's wrong, how do you resuscitate somebody, similar to how, you know, we've taught people how to use AEDs and they're ubiquitous in the airports or offices. Uh, we need to do the same for teaching everyone um, how to recognize an overdose, whether it's from opioids or even alcohol poisoning, and how how to revive that person, either with Narcan and or of course, calling 911, but even, you know, rescue breathing techniques. So that would be another one. And then, of course, research. We, we cannot move forward in medicine and taking care of patients if we don't support research. And so we really have a, a, a focus on working with multiple anesthesia organizations to have a focus on how we can improve anesthesiologists participating in research and then finally, but certainly not the least, is really a communications plan so that, you know, as David Swag calls us the invisibles, we aren't the invisibles with policymakers uh, or hospital administrators, uh, but they understand the value of anesthesiologists really for the whole quality of care in their hospital systems, as well as how they can contribute to the economic engines of hospitals, which really are the ORs, the ICUs. How can we improve quality as well as efficiencies? And so really being able to communicate that to various stakeholders is another goal that I have this year. As a uh, follow-up question in here, how do you see uh, the importance of uh, scope of practice issues to our members and to the future of the specialty? Uh, do you see it as an ongoing issue? Do you think it's something that needs more resources or to be addressed in new ways? Well, unfortunately, scope of practice is still an issue. Um, I wish it weren't that we didn't have to spend time on this, but as long as we have you know, nurses who I very much admire and work with, obviously, in a hospital system on a daily basis, but we have a minority of nurses that really want to put out to the public that they are the same as an anesthesiologist who becomes a physician first after, you know, four years of college, four years of medical school, and then doing a four-year residency, and then many going on to doing fellowships. And to say that they're the same when that is just not, a, in fact, true, the education is vastly different. 
And so while you know, we are very supportive of the anesthesia care team model where practiced, um, we firmly believe that every patient deserves to have a physician anesthesiologist um, overseeing um, their care. And so as long as we have people putting themselves out to be equivalent to physicians, then we will continue to have concerns around scope of practice. I think the good news is, is that the majority of practices, you know, work very well with both their uh, nurse anesthetists and their anesthesiology assistants. And most nurse anesthetists I, I know really enjoy and want to work with um, physicians who can provide that extra level of expertise and backup when things may not go as planned or you have a very complex patient that you're taking care of. Great, great. Of course, we, you know, we're very focused right now on the issues that are currently in front of us and what we want to achieve in the next 12 months. Well, what are the things in your view that we should be monitoring going forward, you know, as we look into 2021 and beyond? Uh, are there issues that you foresee becoming more important in the future to the profession and the ASA? Well, I think that we're going to continue to see um, economic pressure so we need to continue to work on that. But at the same time, I think there is a patient safety issue. We do know that physicians are feeling a lot of production pressure. It's not limited to anesthesiologists, but obviously the operating room is a especially vulnerable environment. It's a very expensive environment, but it's also a very high-risk environment. And so we need to make sure that we're not pushing people uh, to produce more or have, you know, faster turnover times or some of these other things at the expense of patient safety and tr making sure that the patient is truly prepared for surgery, that everything is available that's necessary to safely carry out the operation and the anesthetic plan as well as, as the recovery. So I think the other thing that we know happens is that's talked about a lot now is physician burnout. And unfortunately, um, anesthesiologists have a more successful rate of committing suicide than perhaps other physicians because we deal with these very potent drugs every day and, and we know the, the dosages very well. And so I think burnout is a contributory factor. Um, obviously, it's not the only factor. Depression, some other things can, can also play a role. But I think we have to pay attention to these things so that we look at the human side of medicine and the human side of people that are delivering care, you know, although, you know, there might be some folks, corporate entities out there that would like to have medicine as an assembly line, it, it isn't. And it, you're still dealing with human beings, um, each of whom is, is unique and, and how they interact with the healthcare system. And to really get to person-centered care takes time. And so I think we've got to balance those things, and I think it's going to be even harder in the future. You've been very successful as a woman in a primarily male-dominated field, both anesthesiology and healthcare leadership. What advice or guidance would you provide the woman uh, in both these professions who are hoping to move up the leadership ladder? Well, I think you have to be willing to do your homework, work hard, um, maybe even harder than your colleagues, especially your male colleagues. 
But I would also encourage women who tend to shy away from finance or understanding finance to, whether you like it or not, to familiarize yourself with finance because any leadership role, whether you're managing uh, departments or whatever, um, you need to understand the financial underpinnings of, of that department or hospital or health plan or whatever on, on how that runs. And that's why I ended up taking the track of treasurer to the ASA because once you learn how an organization spends its money and you understand where the revenues come from, you really understand almost everything there is to know about that organization if you understand that. So I would highly encourage uh, women to stay involved and, and learn more about finance. Gender equity has become a, a big issue. I know ASA has been involved surveying members, uh, gathering more information on this topic. How has the whole issue of gender equity affected the field of anesthesiology and, and medicine as a whole? Well, we're not there. Uh, that's the bottom line. And, you know, we're, we're not done until women have um, the same opportunities for advancement, the same types of recognition, and the same pay. And so I think we will continue to discuss it and look at strategies to overcome the obstacles that are in our way. Certainly, we've come a long way. If you read the history of what some women went through in the early pioneer days, we've certainly come a long way, but we're not where we need to be. And it benefits all of us, as we've known from many studies, that the more diversity we have in, in our workplace and especially in our leadership, the better we are as an organization. And if you're looking at publicly traded companies, the better their bottom line is. Great. And then maybe just a couple remaining questions. Uh, Work-life balance is uh, a big issue these days. I'm not even sure that's the right word for it, but that's a common uh, concern these days among all employers. Give us your thoughts on how you, you balance your personal and professional lives and uh, thoughts for folks listening to the show and for ASA more broadly. Well, thank you. And I don't know, I think as we go through life, we you know, at some points, uh, your career is more than you get family and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say, as you pointed out, that it's necessarily a balance. I don't see like a, a scale that's, that's perfectly even out. Um, I think, you know, what people have to concentrate on more is, and what I think we're losing in society really is trying to be present in the moment. So when I'm doing my job at work, I'm really doing my job at work. I'm really present for the people around me, and I'm not trying to multitask where, you know, regardless of how well we think we multitask, we really don't. But I think that's also true when we're at home and with our children or spouses or whatever, that we take time for each other. So it may not be a lot of time, but the time that we do have together should be well used and, you know, you see the typical restaurant scene where people are on their cell phones sitting next to each other or across from each other. And so I think that's where I think we have the wrong impression that we have to spend that much more time with our children when it really is about how we spend time with our children. 
um, and how we appear to our children. Do we appear stressed out or do we love our work? And with my boys, you know, they go, oh, mom, you work so hard. And I said, but I said, you've got to understand and I hope you're blessed enough to find work that you love and enjoy because you can work a lot longer hours and a lot harder if it's something you truly enjoy. So that's probably not a great answer, Paul. You know, I, I, you know, every year I sort of take stock and look at, you know, where have I been successful with, you know, balancing the, you know, my work, my, my goals in life, myself, my spouse, my children, my parents that I've taken care of, and, and where can I do better? And I think we always have to reevaluate and it, it changes and sometimes it gets out of kilter and you got to refocus in a particular area. Great. No, I, I think that's a great answer. And, you know, to me, what I'm hearing is uh, you need to, you know, look for roles where you take joy uh, out of work as well as uh, in the other aspects of your life. And clearly you, you've done that. You're going to have a very, very busy year. Uh, coming up, and I'm sure you're going to be able to look back in October at the annual meeting, a great, you know, great number of successes. But from your perspective, what's your your goal beyond that? Do you have uh, have you thought about that yet, or do you have a clear clear plan going forward, or is that still remain to unfold before you? Well, I, I promised our health care system that I'll be here at least five years, and. Uh, we're looking at building a new hospital um, about 200 miles south. Um, there's just a whole lot of wonderful work going on um, in trying to improve the care of children in South Texas. You know, I have an awesome team I'm working with, and I will really enjoy putting my full devotion to that, as well as I promised my husband <laughs> that I will travel with him to, not for work, but for pleasure, more with him. And we can continue to compete in ballroom dancing and do a little bit more of that. Uh, wonderful. Let me ask you, is there anything we didn't ask? Anything further that you would like to share with us? Well, I think so far as, as being president, um, even though after we put out the Monday morning outreach, there's a barrage of emails. I've really enjoyed hearing uh, from our members, you know, just the rank and file people and hear their perspectives. And I, I really try to answer each one of those uh, myself, but I hope that we can uh, continue to improve our communications and hear from every one of our members if we could. That's great. You know, over the last couple of years, we've really placed an emphasis on more consistent communication and more communication touch points with our members. This podcast series being one additional example of what we're offering to stay in touch. Mary Dale, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your insights, your wisdom, your direction for the year and your hopes for the future. I wish it, want to wish you all the best for a successful term. Paul, thank you so much. It's already been a fun year to start with, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this year and more opportunities to be able to communicate with our members. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. Visit ashq.org slash podcasts for more.